0: God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, that you are, are sovereign, Lord, that you have a, a work that you desire in this place. God, that is far greater than anything that we could ever imagine, dream up, contrive, plan. Um, I thank you that you um, give us a space like this uh, to come together as we are. Lord, knowing that people are in this room today, we're all in this room kind of just with a different daily experience, for one, but also we're kind of coming in at different uh, seasons of our journey of uh, faith. We're knowing that some are, are, are here discovering, kicking tires, uh, with a skeptical even kind of kind of perspective, and some are here that have been walking for years and have just kind of in seasons of, of uh, victory. God, I just pray that from both sides and all in between, Lord, that we would see that you desire to meet us right where we are. You invite us in right as we are, God, and to know that your grace is sufficient, that your word transforms. And, Lord, we just thank you for this time. So be glorified in this time now. Speak through your word. Lord, uh, take the words that pass through my mouth and, and catch them on fire. You, the Holy Spirit, God. And we know that that is the only way that anything good can come of anything that we do. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen amen, amen. Um, well, I I've, I've, I've tried to, anyway, let's just focus. It has been, it's been really great so far in James. I have, it's just been rich for me, and I've loved just working through these, these first uh, four weeks and, and kind of looking at one of the main, I think it's just so helpful, and it's such a, a, a loving pastoral posture that James wrote this letter of like, hey, I know that this life is hard. I know that knowing how you're supposed to live as a Christ follower is hard. And this letter is written, is written to those who proclaim Christ. He said, and I want to help you, I want to show you, I know that you feel the tension of two worlds, I know that you feel the pool of, of, of two different desires of the flesh and the spirit, and, and, and you have ambitions that battle against one another, and he says, I want to help you, I want to show you the value of an undivided life and the way of an undivided life, and he's just, he, he laid that foundation, and just over and over again, now he's working through some very uh, clear and practical um, um, ways to, to see that applied. To our lives. So we're just continuing in that today. Last week, we had a really clear application of, of how those who are in Christ have no, it is so incongruous, and we have no right to show any kind of favoritism at all, and how that exhibits the heart of God shown in Christ, that the grace of, of God shown in Jesus is sufficient for all who would believe, for all. And so just knowing that practically speaking, we, we saw just a beautiful picture of that and how it is, again, it is a unified life to live in that way. And so today we're kind of continuing. We're continuing this work of, of seeing this undivided life. And, but as we look at this passage today, we're just going to kind of follow James, his train of thought. And so there really isn't like some, some great teaching work that I got to do. I just kind of followed him, and we're just going to kind of present his arguments because he presents an idea, and he proves it, and then he makes an argument, and then he proves it. And so we're just going to kind of follow his train of thought, and we're going to end up with really... With really one one clear takeaway, one point today. Um, so, let's have fun letting James teach us. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James two uh, fourteen, uh, is where we're going to start, um, and that's kind of near, near the end of your Bible. Uh, if you have, if you, it'll also be up here on the screens. If you have uh, the Bible app, you can go to the events there and then they'll pop up with some content to help you follow along if you don't have a bible or you don't have anything downloaded there's some bibles underneath the chair near you and you can use that and if you need a bible feel free to take that that's our gift to you Um, but as, as we come to verse 14 of chapter 2, James transitions to kind of this new point, this new topic um, as he continues to call us to this undivided life. In verse 14, he lays out the two foundational questions that the rest of this passage works to answer. So let's look at verse 14 real quick. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So to say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not worse, He's saying, like, what's the point? What's the point of this faith? So really, I mean, it's, it's, can this be a beneficial faith? What it, what good is it? What benefit comes from the faith that we have in Christ? And what? So, so maybe to summarize that in the general, what does effective faith look like? Effective faith that brings change in this world that has an impact on this world. Then it says, can that? Faith. Can that brand of faith save him? So, in the particular, what is saving faith? And just to quickly define the faith that we're talking about, we're talking about the person. That, that, that has understood God to be creator, God that he created mankind uh, in his image for the purpose of fellowship and for the purpose of glorifying him in this world and that we sinned against God and need a reconciliation. We need someone to re- to reconcile us. We need someone to to work on our behalf, to, to restore us to that purpose and that Jesus, him sinning his one and only son, Jesus, and us believing that, confessing that, repenting and turning from our empty dead way of life into the new life with him. This is what faith is, the pursuit, and living out of that reality. So when we talk about this this brand of faith, this idea of faith, that's what we're talking about. It is the the faith-centric hinging on Jesus Christ. So to summarize these two questions, we could say this maybe. What is the point of our faith? Why does it matter? So moving right along, James illustrates a picture of faith that results in no beneficial work, So he does this to help you understand the driving force of his questions. And we see this this example that he lays out in verses 15 through 17. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's just go ahead and acknowledge verse 17 and the kind of sticky wicket that that <laughs> brings us to. Like, if <laughs> I love that, I use that all the time. Who, everyone does, right? Sticky wickets. I don't ever say that. Um, but thinking about like that, that should pull on us, especially if you've been around the teaching of Scripture for any amount of time, and if you've if you've heard about salvation through grace and faith. This should raise some flags for you. It should be like, wait, 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 wait a second. Uh, if it doesn't have works, my faith is dead. So let's just go ahead and acknowledge the tension there and, and just say, hey, it just starts here. James, he, he puts the gauntlet down more and more throughout this text. So this is put pretty softly. It's kind of put in a way of saying, hey, that brand of faith is dead if it doesn't have works. And so. So let's just acknowledge that we're going to get it's, it's going to it's going to go deeper. So let's have fun with that as we go. But as we look at this, we look at this example that James laid out with putting this picture of a brother and sister, someone that someone that you have relationship with that you know that you have access to that you see is has has some kind of some kind of need, and he's pointing out the person that that is lacking in clothes and daily food, the, the very tangible things, and you say, hey go in peace, be warmed and filled, kind of an exhortation of, of a hope and security of God, but yet do nothing to help them. He's like, man, what's the point of your faith? And so what we can see from this, what we must see from these verses, it, it, we can see that part of the we need to see it as prescriptive, and then also we need to be careful about making it too prescriptive. So where we must see this as prescriptive, as saying a way in which of life we must pursue, is that first we see that faith in Jesus Christ is relational. We see that it, it, how we relate to others should be dictated by how we relate to, to Jesus and the way that He made it possible for us to relate in Him. It is a pursuit of a person. And so in that, again, as we are expressing our faith, it is expressed in variable ways relationally because we are um, pursuing Jesus. And, and our faith in Christ is an expression of a new identity, and so James is pointing out this inconsistency. It's not just words; it is a way of life. And to, to summarize that, we, I think we said this a week or two ago. Uh, our faith is in our life. Our, our faith expressed in life is really about manifesting the manner of the Messiah right? So if it's taking on a new identity made possible in Christ, and it's pursuing Christ, saying, your will, your way, that's what I want to be about. It is to manifest the manner of Jesus. So our faith must result in ministries of mercy. I mean, just very, like, so we can't dance around this. We can't go and say, oh, this is just symbolic. Like, this is an actual call to those who call on Christ. Our life should result in ministries of mercy, From the very tangible, like we are shown here in these texts, we should be about meeting the real and tangible physical needs of those around us when we are able. And then also it it extends all the way to the ultimate showing of mercy, of proclaiming the truth of Jesus, the good news of the gospel of of restoration and hope and salvation in Jesus. And that is the most merciful act of, of all. And so you can think of... The, the, the themes we've been going through of, of, of calling us not to sit in the seat of judgment, but to, to allow God to be in that seat, to, to not show favoritism. Because again, that puts us in a place where we are dictating who is good and who is, who is right and who is wrong. But he's saying that in our move to showing the, these ministries of mercy... It goes from the tangible all the way to the ultimate of persons caring for a person's soul and in love, proclaiming the truth of Jesus, proclaiming the reality of sin and the hope and redemption in Christ. So that's how it's prescriptive. This section is also, we got to be careful in, in that it's not totally prescriptive as well. This is not placing the work of tangible helps as the ultimate purpose of faith. Or the ultimate expression. As, as we mentioned a week or two ago, our tangible work in this world is to model the heart of God for the hurting, oppressed, and destitute. Remember that it was our spiritual state that moved the heart of God to send Jesus first and foremost. So ultimately, it is to point people to the reality of the kingdom that his promise, the, the, the reality of, of his kingdom, that his promise is a present hope and a peace that has a day of freedom promised ahead where there will be no more sickness, pain, or death. And so, yes, we participate in very tangible ministries of mercy, but only with the understanding that knowing that the ultimate purpose of this is to give a picture of the kingdom, to show the heart of God to the weak, to the, to the less resource, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, and to see, that, to see ourselves in that reality every, at, at every moment and to see that's what moved God to work on our behalf. So our work here on earth must never be done as if our ultimate hope is in this world, but the reality of God's eternal kingdom must result in our active work in this world, for this world. But let me say that again, because that's a big hinge point for here. Our work here on earth must never be done as if our ultimate hope is in this world, but the reality of God's eternal kingdom must result in our active work in and for this world. So that's the picture James is calling us to here. And then he says, just to recap where we started, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he's contrasting, kind of saying, what kind of faith do you have and what's the point of it and what's the effect of it? So I know, you want, I know that you want me to resolve that verse 17 now, but we'll let James do it as we go. So let's continue, James 2, 18 through 19 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the, de- even the demons believe and shudder. So James is now taking this illustration, and he's taking it even deeper. He's doubling down, and he's, he's kind of starting this rhetorical conversation. You know, this, he's kind of referring to this rhetorical ar- this argument kind of speaking to the general perspective of that, that, we, um, that, that we often face and maybe even hold to in some ways ourselves. So there are two things uh, worth saying here as we look at this. Uh, first, James is largely addressing the religious elite of those who lead in, in, in the Jewish culture. And knowing that he's speaking to those that were Jews the, the Jewish people that called on Christ as Messiah. So he's speaking to them. So they grew up in such a way of life and understanding that it's not just exhorting the religious elite, but he's also talking to a culture that was greatly influenced by the fact that their measure was a man, as far as the, the culture had kind of devolved into. They looked to the Pharisees as their, as, as their measure of righteousness. And so it was... It, and, and they and they were all about the outward expression of righteousness. Maybe you, you've you know heard, or if you've been here, maybe you've heard talked about before. But I mean, they they were super devout. It was all about making sure their lives showed outwardly that they were righteous. But that's all that it was. Jesus called them whitewashed walls. He said, "You're so concerned about the outside of your cup, while the inside of your cup is filthy." So James, I mean, James is speaking to this reality. He's He's one exhorting directly those who hold that posture, but then he's also speaking to a culture whose conscience may be burdened by by kind of the conditioning of their whole life, that that's what righteousness looks like. So for a Jew of the time to make the confession, God is one, as we see in this text, it has the same force as you and I proclaiming the full supremacy of Jesus Christ in his full deity. It is, this, it is, it is, it is a hallowed statement. It is saying that I believe that God is all that he says he is. It's, 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 a, norm, it's a common rhetoric of, of awe and respect and adoration. And so he's saying like, hey... You say that you believe God is one, you say you believe in the, in the sovereign holiness of God and, that you, and that's important to you, but then he's pointing out that it must go beyond there. What we see here is James is calling us to pursue a faith that goes deeper than intellectual assent, right? It's not just what we know about God and what we say about God, but it's actually the faith that penetrates to the very core of who we are that, that translates to the motives of our life. So he's calling us beyond just the intellectual assembly, beyond just the outward expression, but that it must change us here in our hearts, on the inside. And then we go from there. And we're talking about theology here, right? The right knowledge, the right understanding of God. Theology is good, right? Thinking about who God is is important, but the aim just can't be right thinking. I mean, think about Satan and his demons, Right? I think they think pretty rightly about who God is. They tried to overthrow. And what happened? They experienced the awe and majesty of His power and His righteousness. They were cast out. They still know who He is. They still know that God is God. They still know that He is sovereign over all things. But yet they deny who He is. They deny His goodness. They deny His, his, his rule and reign over them. Their, their hearts are rebellious. They, they're the most orthodox of anyone. They know. And it says, they know, they believe, but they shudder. They're wrong and that rebel that they rebel against who God is. They shudder. And so should we, if we acknowledge God to be our sovereign, holy creator who rules and reigns, and yet do not live unto his glory and his purpose. Do you feel the momentum picking up as James is driving us to our takeaway? As C.L. Mitten, which I expect all of you to know who that is, put it. I don't know who he is other than he's written some good stuff and other people reference him well. Um, That's it. Um, But he says this. He says, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. We're starting to see the contrast between Paul and James here, right? As as we kind of talked about in verse 17, and now here again, just to kind of highlight that contrast, let's look at one of Paul's statements of teaching on on kind of salvation and justification. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, "...for by grace you have been saved." I don't want to get feedback. For, for, for by grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as James' is teaching is picking up momentum, I would I think you would feel it butting up against this teaching from Paul and say, wait, 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 wait. Are, are we heading into contradictory waters? Are we allowed to do that? Well, I would say, no, you're not because you can't, because it doesn't contradict. So we'll get there. What do we do with this tension and maybe this seeming contradiction? So in these next verses, James basically says, you want proof, I'll give you proof. I'm going to skip verse 24 for now and bring the, the two examples that he uses together and then we'll come to verse 24 in a minute. So 20 through, uh, 20 through 23 and verse 25. So here comes James' argument. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, He's he's not pulling any punches. That faith apart from works is useless. And so here comes an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6 he's quoting there. And he was called a friend of God. And then 25 is another example. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So James is illustrating the relationship between faith and work here. First, we see that faith comes first and is then accompanied by works. Looking at Abraham and Rahab, they both first had faith that led to works. Abraham if you know his story or if you don't, let's me just let just refresh real quick. He's, the, he's kind of the patriarch. He, he is, he is, he, he's kind of the father of, of, of faith, and through, through his line comes the covenant, comes the promise to the people of Israel. But he was living way up in the north in this place called Ur, and God comes to him and he says, hey, I want you to take, I want you to take all you have, and I want you to leave this place and go south to the, to the land of promise. He's like, okay, well, where's that? He's like, I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. And then as he goes, so, so Abraham, he has enough faith to trust God at this point. He shows that he understands God to be God, and he acts in faith. He goes, but we see that his faith is still lacking. If you were to follow his story, which we're not going to unpack at all, but he had this promise that he would inherit a land of promise, and that through his descendants, all of the world would be blessed all of the entire world will be blessed. They so would receive the blessing of the covenant through his descendants. And as, But we see, if you were to follow their story, Abraham and his wife Sarah don't always act in a faith that reflects true understanding of who God is. For example, there's one story of, of them coming. Uh, there was a famine in the land, so they went to Egypt. And, they, and he tells his wife Sarah, which was Sarai at the time, hey, go, go into the palace and tell them you're my sister so that they'll take you in as, as one of Pharaoh's wives and, and I can get a favorable spot because he was a, he was a semi-nomadic uh, pastoralist. What does that mean? He, he lived off the land. And, and needing a good spot of land was contingent on his family doing well. So because it took some political maneuvering, you needed kind of political favor. And so this was just a, really a very practical thing for his family. And he's like, well, hey, so this is not good, by the way. It's not good to tell your wife to go propose to your sister. This is not making a good example. This is not the Bible sh- telling us this so we can say, oh, okay, polygamy's okay or deceit's okay. This is a picture of a sovereign God working through imperfect people. But he, he tells her to go in. Long story short, Pharaoh's like, hey, my house is good and bad. All, all the women are barren. There's a lot of sickness going on. Something's happening. And he ends up figuring out what happened, and he, he kicks Sarah out, he goes to Abram, and he says, hey, take your wife back in here, take everything you've, you've earned along the way. Again, crazy story, but, uh, but they get to go. And you see stuff like this happen over, over and over again where Abraham acts in his kind of own understanding as he also kind of walks in obedience, kind of waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promise. And as we go, we see the, the promise, the covenant getting clear that it is actually through the offspring of him and his wife, Sarah, that the descendant, that the covenant will be extended to all creation. And so we, we follow through his whole life. They're old. They're old. He's, he's right near the end. He has finally made it into the inherited land, the land of promise. And then now he has him and Sarah have had Isaac. They're really old. They had Isaac, a son. So all the promises are in place. It's all, I mean... He's seen God proven faithful. And what does God do? You think it's done. He's like, okay, I can die now. What happens? God says, well, hey, okay, so now that you've got it all, I want you to take your only descendant from you and Sarah, which is the way that I promised that the covenant would be delivered. I want you to take that son, and now I want you to go offer him up to me on the altar. I want you to kill him. This is the first time when we see Abraham's faith exhibited and true works that, under, that show that he understands God. Without question, he takes Isaac, he takes a servant, and they take all the, all the supplies needed for the offering. He takes wood and the knife and the rope, and they go up to the altar, and he tells the servant, we'll be back, which speaks to he, he had some sense. But anyway, we won't go into all that, but he, goes, but he goes up there, and he puts his son Isaac on the altar. He had prepared the wood to light the fire. He raises the knife. What happens? God says, hey, stop. And he provided a, he provided a substitutionary offering and a goat in a thicket. But in this, when we see James referencing the faithfulness and the faith of Abraham, this is the moment he's talking about. This is the moment where Abraham placed his faith, his understanding, in something far greater than his own understanding. He, for the first time, he wasn't kind of mixing in his common sense with the call of God. Because for him to kill Isaac would have wiped out the promise of God as he understood it. But yet he said, okay, I trust God now. I trust him. So let's do it. So we see that he had faith and it led him to action. And for the first time, this faith was exhibited with just pure, the pure expression of a work unto God. This is the faith being spoken of. In Rahab, she was a prostitute in Jericho. So Abraham is like this this awe-inspiring figure in the Jewish teaching and tradition, Rahab's a nobody. She's a prostitute in Jericho. Joshua and the people of Israel are now about to come in and take Jericho. Joshua sends them some spies to Jericho, and they end up uh, in, in the home of Rahab. And she ends up hiding them from the guards, helping them escape out of the town, and then helping them know how to, how to overtake Jericho. She reveals her motives to the spies here. And this is where we can say that Rahab had faith before she had works. Joshua 2, 8-13 through says this, Before the men lay down, as you about the spies, they were up on the roof, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came, when you came out of Egypt." And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So she's just saying, we've heard of this God. We've heard of your God. We've heard of you and how God has worked through you. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, here's her confession, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath she states her faith, her understanding of who God is, and she says, Now, then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So we see in that sentence, in that proclamation, Because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her faith led her to this action. We see it in her confession. She acknowledged the God of Israel, as sovereign, almighty God, and that she, would, that she could only be delivered by his favor. Abraham walked by faith before his works proved justified, before they proved or justified his faith before God. He trusted God, but through obedience finally saw his faith proven, saw it complete, he finally showed that he trusted God over the earthly provisions and the willingness to offer Isaac, like we said. So the key to understanding is found in the statement that faith was acting alongside his works and faith was completed by his works. That word completed in the Greek has the sense of to be made perfect by reaching the intended goal. When we think about it, we ask the question, what's the point of faith? What is the result of faith in here? This must propel us beyond an idea that faith is just about salvation. It is about salvation. It is about redemption. It is about going from being dead to life. It is going from, from, from being divided to unified. It is from going from being um, incomplete to complete, as it says. But it goes beyond that. So it says, to be made. it's, it's like to be made perfect by reaching the intended goal. We see complete used in this way also in, in 1 John 2, 5 through 6. It says, But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's not that the, the God is incomplete that we need to complete him, but it's that our, our our faith is proven complete by this response, this way of life. We can see the point. Of our faith. So we must see that our faith in Jesus demands a participation in his work in this world. Like we already said, to manifest the manner of the Messiah, to participate in the ministry of mercy. One other astounding truth from this this section of text reinforces our call against partiality from last week. The gospel and gospel mission are no different. James, by using Abraham, the most lauded and venerated figure in the Old Testament, by by James's audience at the time, paired with the relative nobody in Rahab, exhibits two things. None are excluded from the hope of Jesus. No one is too good or too bad. And none are excluded from the mission of Jesus. No one falls short of the qualifications to be used by God if they have experienced the transforming grace in Jesus and are walking in His ways. So no one's excluded from the hope of Jesus, and no one is excluded from the mission of Jesus. So we're getting there, but we're still left with this word justification that we have to deal with. So we see we're working there, but we do. There's still a lingering tension of this word justification. So let's come back to verse 24. It says, "You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone." So now James is no longer like. Putting any qualifiers out, he just puts the gauntlet down in this cut and dry sentence. You see that a person is justified by faith, by justified by works, and not faith alone. And just really quickly, let me let me turn to Romans. I think it's three twenty three, yeah, or twenty four. So, in all, and let's oh, do 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so, we see a contrast. First, let me just say, justification is always speaking of the way in which we are made able to stand innocent before a judge. It is the making of us to be innocent. So what we can say here is that Paul and James are using the word justify, but in two different ways. Paul uses justify to denote God's initial verdict of innocence pronounced over the sinner who trusts Jesus Christ in faith. It's the the instantaneous change of, of standing um, that is acted upon someone when they are accredited the righteousness of Jesus upon belief and confession. So James uses justify in the sense of proving the reality of that, that work. Just to set our hearts and minds at ease that James and Paul are not contradicting, let's come back to that, that passage in Ephesians we looked at a minute ago uh, from earlier, but take it one verse further. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? That's what we read. And then it says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I would say as you read the teaching and study the teaching of Paul, he, he just always talks about faith. And I would, I would encourage you to go and read through it and look at his connotation of that picture of faith. He... he James says faith alone, right? He, has this, he adds this modifier of faith alone. I would, I would make the, the statement that I think Paul intends the same. Whenever he speaks of faith, it is, a, it is an intended understanding that faith would encompass this full life for Christ. And, Paul, and James is addressing a very specific need of this claim that, that we can be saved without it actually changing how we live. So Paul speaks just in the terms of faith. James speaks in the terms of faith alone. So James uses justify as proving out a genuine faith. I really appreciate how, how one commentator summarized it. He said, if James uses the verb with this sense, then he will be claiming that the ultimate vindication of the believer in the judgment is based on, or at least takes into account, the things that person has does, that person has done. So justify in Paul refers to how a person gets into a relationship with God. While in James, it connotes what the relationship must ultimately look like to receive God's final approval. So, when we enter into the faith rooted in Jesus, it is utterly devastating to our old self. In a great way, it eradicates the old self. We have to see that to come to Christ and to say, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, you are my Redeemer, I acknowledge you as that, and I follow you. It, is, it, is, it, it eradicates who we were. Fundamentally, in every way, changes us. We are completely changed, personally and experientially. So I want to try to illustrate it uh, and kind of, uh, kind of a personal picture of the two ways we see justification being talked about here. I'm married, right? Amber is my wife. We've been married for over 11 years. When, when we stood before each other on that wedding day, and we went through the, the, that ceremony, we stood there and said, I do to one another. And that was a covenantal commitment that we made. That was a covenant that, that was meant to stand forever. Until the day that one of us dies, we are, we are bound in this covenant. It is, a, it is a, a commitment that requires a full giving from both sides our relationship in that moment was completely changed i loved her before i said i do i was i was pursuing to give my life to her i but in that moment it was galvanizing and forever all that i all all, all of my life changed my motives my goals my purpose in this life This is is what Paul talks about in being justified by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Our standing changes. Our identity changes. Our purpose in this life changes. But with this commitment, and just as in marriage, comes an expectation of a way of life. So my, my position changes, and I cannot change that in that covenant. But yet, there's an expectation of a way of life that, that should be acted upon me. I should be loving. I should be sacrificial, pursuing, proactive, loyal. This is what the intent of marriage is. That's the marriage that has life, not the marriage that, that, that we see as dead. We know what dead marriages look like. And unfortunately, the, the view of marriage is being so kind of secularized that we, we, we lose the awe of this picture. But, but yet, when we think about kind of the, the, the way of life that should come from what we what may just kind of in earthly terms say is a healthy marriage or a, a, a marriage that's passionate or purposeful, like the one that we all want, we know. That's the picture here. It's the one that is self-giving, loving, sacrificial, all those things. And, and if we're honest, nobody, like, it's really no marriage at all that does not embody the realities of the marriage with life that we just described. I mean, what's the point? Which is, I mean, kind of, again, we see the impact of that kind of marriage. They just, eventually they just end that's not the intent. The marriage that fulfills the purpose for it given in God evidences the real observable behavior out of love. And so what we're seeing here in James, he's saying, you have experienced a a transformational work in Christ as you were justified in him. And now that, that change, that eternal change should be evidence, should be justified, should be proven, should be proven complete by the way that you live your life by the evidence of your life being submitted to the will, to the heart, to the truth of God, by, by your, your goals in this life being motivated by, by the glory of God, by the, for the good of others to manifest the manner of the Messiah that we go and we, as he incarnated into our world to meet our need, we now enter into this world in the same way. Very active and in intentional and tangible ways and ultimately with the truth of who Jesus is. So that's the picture there. We are, we are made forever right with God the moment that we believe and confess Jesus as the Messiah because He completes that work in us. But we are to justify that faith. We are to prove and show that faith by the way that we live, by how we live obedient lives. And James closes with this uh, verse 26. It says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. just saying it's contradictory is is so incongruent to say that you have faith in an almighty living God through a savior Jesus that you are invited to to know walk with pursue and yet just as your body without the spirit has no life your faith apart from works is dead So here's our promise in reality to close. Our eternal salvation is secured for us by Jesus as we place our supernatural trust in Him. The change that we experience in this surrender is so complete that James says it is impossible to have true saving faith without it changing the way you live your life. Our faith is not just for salvation although it is for salvation. It is also a call to the purpose of Jesus in our world where we pursue to conform our will and ways and motives to that of God's given in His Word, lived out by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So faith is not just for salvation. It is for the work of God's glory in this world and the work of His calling people in. And so we, we must call ourselves to reflect on the work and way of Christ. That's one of the reasons that we do communion every week. As we come to the end of our sermon, we do communion, one, to, to reflect on the work of Christ and the manner of which He did it, knowing that as we die to ourselves and take on the life of Christ, we find freedom and also purpose in this world. And we also want to learn a form of a way of life and community to know that it says every time... Every time you, you break bread together, you should be grateful. You should be thinking of the provision that was made in Christ for you, for your souls, for your life, for your purpose. You should be sharing the stories of God's faithfulness and your purpose as you walk in obedience. You should, this is to teach us a form of life. So we're, so we're going to take communion now. We do it every week. And as we, as we come to the table, as, as some would say, let us be reflective on the work of Christ. Let us think well on, his, on the heart of God expressed in the way that he sent Jesus into our world to meet our need. And praise God that the work of saving us was accomplished in Christ. And praise God that he has called us to actually participate in the work of proclaiming that to others. So I pray that as we spend this time thinking on the, the body of Christ that was broken, broken, the blood of Christ that was shed for our forgiveness and our redemption, that we will be moved to great humility and we would be emboldened and made courageous and moved with great compassion to go into this world and live as the light of Christ, calling people to hope in Christ, living out love in tangible ways and man being hungry for the Word of God, knowing that it is a way in which He's given us fellowship with Him and also a way of knowing how we should live for him and be dependent on the Holy Spirit to bring it all to life in us and to empower us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 26 it said, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, speaking of Jesus, at the table with the disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took up the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me pray, and after I pray, you guys can respond. There'll be people to your, to your left and your right with a, with a basket of bread and a drink. Just break off some bread and dip it in the, in, the, in the cup and partake and just reflect and remember well, and then you can make your way back to your seats and continue just as we sing with those leading us or praying. And there's also some people in the back that would love to pray with you if you need prayer. Um, so let me, uh, let me pray for this time let us respond well. So God... What a majestic truth. Lord, that in our sin, you were moved by love and grace. Lord, not to leave us as exiles, not to leave us as wayward, not to leave us as orphans, not to leave us as condemned, but Lord, to make a way for us to you and your Son Jesus. Lord, the very thing you demanded of us, God, holiness righteousness, purity, you satisfied for us in Jesus Christ. Let us not miss that. Let us, let us not go a day without, without just reflecting and responding in awe of you and your love. And Lord, as we surrender and as we, as we say, God, thank you for Jesus and my life is yours, we would realize that the part of repenting is turning from an old way of life, taking off the old self and putting on a new way of life. And so, Lord, as we, as we break the bread, symbolizing your body that was broken, and, and dip it in the cup, symbolizing the blood that was shed, Lord, that we would just kind of in, a, in our hearts remember the invitation to die to ourselves. And Lord, then as we think, as we, as we partake, and we, and we think on Christ's death, but that it, that it didn't end there, that he was also raised again on the third day to defeat sin and death, and to be raised to life, Lord, that in him, We're not left just, we're not left to death. We are raised to new life with eternal hope and present purpose. So I pray that this time of responding would be, Lord, for your glory, it would be transformative in our hearts and minds, that we would reveal, have revealed to us our need for Jesus, our hope that is beyond this world, our purpose that is in this world for the kingdom to come. Lord, I pray that this would be a pattern, a way of life that is repeated in all of the times that we gather. And God, as we gather as the body of Christ, as the people of God, I pray that we would not be exclusive and hold out the world, but that we will hold out the light, invite others in, and Lord, allow you to bring hope and truth, to bring salvation, to restore purpose. So God, we give you this time. We are in awe of your love and your grace.